Good morning, church. It's good to see you this morning. Please be turning in your copy of God's Word to Luke chapter 6. As you turn there, I'll offer my thanks on behalf of my family and also our intentional worker friends overseas for the time, the support, the prayers while we were away. It certainly was a blessing and we can't wait to share with you what God is doing over in Central Asia. But this morning we'll be back in the Beatitudes, concluding with a section that is unique to the Gospel of Luke, Jesus' pronouncement of woes. And in order to provide just a little additional context, I'm going to begin with verse 20 in the Beatitudes. We'll read all the way through the woes this morning in verse 26. Please remember as I read, these are the words of the Lord. And turning his gaze toward his disciples, he began to say, Blessed are the poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who hunger now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are those who cry now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when men hate you and exclude you and insult you and scorn your name as evil for the sake of the Son of Man. Be glad in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For their fathers were doing the same things to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you are receiving your comfort in full. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and cry. Woe to you when all men speak well of you. For their fathers were doing the same things to the false prophets. Thus far is the reading of the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. God. You may be seated. As you take your seats, we'll open with a word of prayer and ask God's blessing on our time this morning. Father, no matter what place in time a son or daughter of the king finds themselves. They require nourishment from your word. And so we acknowledge that this morning to you that we need nourishment. And we know that this comes through the word, but only being effectual to us through the powerful work of the Holy Spirit. So we ask that you move amongst him this morning, that through the pastoral prayer, as sins were confessed this morning, as Dustin led us, that people were freed from those things that were holding them captive, and that the Spirit would move freely in our hearts to lead and guide and direct us towards obedience to Christ today and always. Well, it's in Jesus' name we ask these things. Amen. In the opening of the biblical songbook, you find the words of King David from Psalm 1. They begin with the declaration of esher, that's the Hebrew word, for a state of blessedness, of a true, lasting, powerful happiness in the body and in the soul. That man, Psalm 1 
recounts, is filled with a bliss, an elation, a satisfaction with the joy of the Lord, which is his strength. It is because that man doesn't hang out with wicked, sinful, scoffing men. He doesn't give them attention. He doesn't give them the time of day. He doesn't drink, smoke, or chew, or call himself a tranny too. Instead, his heart and affections and time and devotion are dedicated to Yahweh, his God, to the things of the Father and understanding the heart of his God. Psalm 1 functions as a kind of Davidic beatitude. But it isn't just talking about a blessed man. It also speaks towards the end of a man of wickedness. And to that man, woes are pronounced. He is driven away like the chaff. He cannot rise in the judgment. He will not assemble with the righteous. And utterly, one day, he will perish forever. And so we have the Beatitudes, and if you'll allow me, we have the bad attitudes. And then we come to Luke 6, and Jesus, as the new shepherd king of Israel, the new and greater David, begins his greatest sermon of all time with the word about a blessed man. And he concludes that preface to this great sermon with a warning to the wicked who are not like the blessed man. The question for us this morning, beloved, is the same as it was for Jesus' disciples when they first heard this. Which group do I belong to? The blessed man or him to whom the woes are pronounced? Now, before we get into the text this morning, I want to ask the question, what is in a woe? In verses 24 to 26, we have to figure out what exactly Jesus is saying when he says, woe to you who are rich. Woe to you who are well-fed. Woe to you who are laughing and spoken well of by everyone around you. The term woe is not a term we use in everyday talk, especially in the modern West. The Greek word ui, that's the word for woe in Greek, just about defines itself by the sound you make when you say it. Ui, woe, alas, how pitiful, how misfortunate, not good, no bueno. It's got a prophetic element to it, even a, a, in a sense it's meteorological in turn. There's some bad weather ahead Dark clouds on the way. This is your tornado warning. In other words, if you don't do something to prepare yourself, doom awaits you. You probably heard somebody say something like, well, you'll be sorry. My friends in high school used to say stuff like that to me. It wasn't a lot of love in their hearts when they did, but they would say things like, hey, keep on walking. See what happens to you. That's about as close as we can come in modern English to what a woe is communicating, and what Jesus is trying to communicate to the people that are listening to him on this mountaintop plain. But I want you to know that the biblical woes 
weren't calculated predictions. They weren't thoughts of, well, I think this could happen to you, or I'm going to throw out an empty threat. I'm not sure if it's going to land. In the Bible, the woes were always pronounced by Yahweh God through the mouth of his prophets, and they never missed, not one time. The Jewish hearers would have instantly picked up on what Jesus was driving at. I mean, the Old Testament is full of woe passages. From the prophet Amos, chapter 6, verse 1, Woe to those who are at ease in Zion and to those who feel secure in the mountain of Samaria. You may feel comfortable, but woe to you. You'll be sorry. Habakkuk chapter 2, 15 and 16. Woe to you who make your neighbors drink, who mix in your venom even to make them drunk so as to look at their nakedness. You will be filled with disgrace rather than glory. You hear what's in a woe. Deuteronomy 27 is the longest listing in one chapter of the Old Testament of woes. They're translated in many translations as curses. I'm not going to read the whole chapter in full. It would be a worthy use of your devotional time this week as you think back on this text from Luke 6. But it says things like, Cursed is the man who makes an image, dishonors father and mother, moves an ancient landmark, leads astray the blind, perverts justice to a sojourner, lies with his father's wife, and so on, and so on, and so on. But it's in the prophet Isaiah that we find more references to woes than anywhere else in all of the scripture. There's a list in chapter 5, verses 8 to 23, in chapter 30, the first two verses, and in 31. And in what may be in Jesus' mind here as he pronounces these woes, in Luke 6, a direct parallel to this preface to the sermon, Isaiah says in chapter 65, verses 13 to 16, Therefore thus says the Lord Yahweh, Behold, my slaves will eat, but you will be hungry. Behold, my slaves will drink, but you will be thirsty. Behold, my slaves will be glad, but you will be put to shame. Behold, my slaves will shout joyfully with a merry heart, but you will cry out with a pained heart, and you will wail with a broken spirit. You will leave your name for a curse to my chosen ones, and Lord Yahweh will himself put you to death. But my slaves will be called by another name, because he who is blessed in the earth will be blessed by the God of truth. And he who swears in earth will swear by the God of truth. Because the former distresses are forgotten and because they are hidden from my sight. You hear Psalm 1, that man is blessed, but woe to the wicked. You hear the words of Jesus, blessed today, even now, are the poor, are those who cry, are those who are hungry, those who are persecuted but those who are full and rich and laughing and praise now, they will one day be sorry. Do you get a sense of what Jesus means when he gives to us these woes here, unique to Luke, 
at the end of this preface in chapter 6. You remember in Matthew's gospel, there are no woes. There are only blessings. We have to ask ourselves the question, what's going on here? Why did Jesus add an uh-oh course to the Kingdom Ethics 2.0 class that he's giving here at the plain when he came down the mountain with his disciples? You remember that in Matthew, Jesus is speaking exclusively to disciples, chapter 5, verse 1. But in Luke, he's speaking to the disciples and others who are also listening in, also curious about the kingdom life of Jesus. And you've got to be careful here. Because when we come to the woes, it's tempting to think, you know, this is the section where Jesus turns on the unbeliever. He points the double barrel right at him, and he's warning the ones on the fringe about their coveting and clinging to the things of earth. There's no question that lost people are listening in to this message. But is Jesus speaking to them? Is he principally speaking to them even? Are they his primary audience? At the start of the sermon, Luke says that Jesus' gaze was turned towards his disciples. And here at the beginning of verse 24, there's no indication in the text that the woe to you who are wealthy, well-fed, laughing, and popular, there's not one hint that this was directed suddenly at a different group. As though Jesus is pointing to his disciples and saying, blessed are you for being poor and crying and all of that, but woe to these folks over here who aren't. There's no indication that he's talking to a different group all of a sudden. We saw this in a small way last week when Jeremy helpfully dealt with verse 23. I want you to look at verse 26 because it's repeated there and it's in our text this morning. Woe to you when all men speak well of you for their fathers were doing the same things to the false prophets. Well, now you've got to ask yourself, who's the you he's talking about? Because he's got those that are on the outside, their fathers. The you isn't included in that. He's still talking directly at this one group. Their fathers is referring to those on the outside. At the very least, we can say that Jesus is still speaking at least, including his disciples in the discussion, But I think we can say it more strongly than that. Both the Beatitudes and the woes are directed at those who want to follow Jesus. Who were the woes of the Old Testament directed towards? The people of God. Who were Paul's warnings in Galatians aimed at when he threw out the highest curse biblically imaginable in Galatians 1.9, the anathema, which literally means God damn that one. That's what it means. Or when Paul spoke about those Judaizers who were telling the sheep of Christ that they had to be circumcised and keep the whole law. And he told them that if they're going to be circumcised, they might as well cut the rest of it off. Galatians 5.12, strong language. Who are the warning passages in Hebrews targeting in order to stir the people of God to repentance and obedience? They're all made towards people who claim the name of Christ to Christians. 
Jesus is telling his followers here in the preface to this sermon, as he's pronounced these blessings, he's also warning them. You're on the inside, but woe to you as as if you live as those on the outside do. You are blessed because you have accepted my new kind of life, my new covenant standard, a new set of moral absolutes, the only moral absolutes in truth. Your value system is wholly different than those who still cling to the world, who submit to the flesh, who still follow the voice of the devil. So why would you want to do the same things that they do? Why would you want to make mud pies in the slums when you've already had a vacation at the beach? Why would you want to go back to Egypt? That's a repeated theme in the scriptures. Here's your hermeneutic for the sermon this morning, beloved. This is how I want you to listen going forward. Jesus is not shouting at wolves primarily in this section. He's warning his sheep. These are words for us too, at the very least for us too, church. I would say primarily for us. They are here for our good. When you come to these four categories, it's not wrong to stop and listen to them as the Holy Spirit gives unction, taking inventory of yourself, saying, is it I, Lord? Am I being unfaithful to your kingdom because I'm seeking my own instead? I mean, that's a very practical outworking of hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Oh, Lord, let it not be so that this is me. And I don't mean that you should turn into that abhorrent navel gazer, that you self-murder to dissect in your own mind and imaginations, that you sin strip mine yourself into oblivion. People can do that. If you're sitting here today and all you get out of this sermon is a vague sense that you're doing something wrong, but you don't know what. You can't put your finger on it. You listen to Dustin in his pastoral prayer say, if there's anything God revealed to me, I need to repent of it now. And you're like, oh, I've got to find something. But all you come up with is a fear that maybe you're outside of Christ. You've committed the unpardonable sin. I want to give you a word of encouragement. Knock it off. Just stop it. Give God some credit. He is omniscient. He has a whole lot more insight into your life than you do. And he doesn't motivate us like the devil does. Satan motivates by fear. God motivates by conviction. Fear is vague and amorphous like you're in a smoke screen. Conviction is clear and it gets right to the point. If you sit here this morning and you listen to the woes, knowing these were intended for my edification too, and God puts something in your mind as plain as the words on the page in front of you, you had better respond to it. Christians who go down the woe road, the good news is they can be brought back into the fold. But oh, beloved, how it will cost you if you start down that road. Those of you familiar with Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress will remember how after Christian was converted and he lost his burden, as he stood and looked upon the cross, 
he was given a scroll that he could take out and read whenever he needed some encouragement. It wasn't long after that, though, that Christian got careless. He got lost in the moment, and then all of a sudden he couldn't find his scroll anymore. You remember that he had to trace his steps back to the arbor where he last remembered having it. On the way, he lamented his circumstances. He said, how many steps I have taken in vain. Thus it happened to Israel for their sin. They were sent back again by the way of the Red Sea, and I am made to tread those steps with sorrow, which I might have trod with delight had it not been for this sinful slumber." How far I might have been on my way by this time. I am made to tread those steps thrice over, which I needed not to have trod but once. Yea, now also I am like the benighted, for the day is almost spent. Oh, that I had not fallen asleep. Listen, beloved, this is the exact intention of God for your soul when you read this portion of Scripture this morning. If the Beatitudes are God's loving exhortation to His children to keep us headed in the right direction, oh, you may be poor, but you get the kingdom now. You may be hungry, but trust me, you're going to be satisfied. That's what those Beatitudes produce in us. It's an exhortation. Keep going. Don't stop running. It's that fatherly, come on, son, you've got it. Don't give up now. Then the woes are His fatherly warning. And they make us persevere. Ah, son, what a loss it will be if you leave me and turn again to the world, the flesh, and the devil. Now, there are some of you who think you're in the in crowd this morning, that you belong here. You're going to listen to what I say here in a minute and nod your head and you're going to say amen. You're going to walk right out those doors and act like this doesn't apply to you. You'll keep living for the moment, for the things of earth, for your best life now, more on that in a minute, and you'll get all that you can here on earth without hardly a thought of what Christ demands of you because he died for you. You'll just keep pretending and playing kabuki here at Christ the King. You'll be walking up to the eternal sheepfold one day looking at the bright gates of glory. Can you imagine this? Jesus will be separating the sheep from the goats, and as your family and friends and fellow members walk through, the rod of the shepherd will fall right in front of you and bar the way. And he whose eyes will pierce your soul will look at you and say, Woe to you, you didn't heed my warning. You know who you are, lost person. You don't have another day to wait. Christ has already shed his blood and rose again for your justification. Fall on your knees and call him Lord and God, and he will save you if you do. Well, let's get into the content of these woes this morning in verses 24 to 26. The very first thing you notice when you read the four woes is that they are the exact inverse of the previous four Beatitudes. A blessing to the poor is replaced by a woe to the rich. A blessing to the hungry changes to a woe to the well-fed. A blessing to the tearful turns into a woe to those laughing now. Jesus ends the blessings speaking to the persecuted, and he ends the woes by warning those who seek the praise of men. Remember, Jesus is describing one kind of person here. These build on each other. 
He's not talking to a poor man and then to a man who's crying now and then to a man who may be hungry. He's talking to the same kind of man. This righteous life of Christ produces a likeness to Christ in each of us. And so the woes point to how we become likened again to the world. And Jesus wants to warn us against that. Look at the first woe with me in verse 24. Woe to you who are rich, for you are receiving your comfort in full. Now based on the study that we've done so far in the Beatitudes, we know what Jesus is not saying. Already we know what he's not implying here. He isn't simply targeting those who have a lot of money. That's part of it, but not all of it. The parable of the rich man and Lazarus comes to mind. What does the Bible say? In Luke 16, 19, he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. And then you might also think of the story of the rich young ruler. You remember what happened? He came to Jesus to figure out what he had to do. What's it going to take for me to get into the pearly gates? Jesus told him to keep the commandments, which he said he had. But when he was asked to sell all of his stuff, he became very sad, for he was exceedingly rich. Luke 18, 23. Now you might be thinking, well, that sounds a lot like riches to me. It sounds like it is talking about money. But it's actually not. Having read passages like the above... The church has taught for years that money is the root of all kinds of evil. Church, I want to ask you this morning, is that true? No, it is not. It is not true. That's not what the Bible says. It says the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And that's what's at issue here in this first woe. Think again of Matthew Levi who came to Christ loaded and threw Jesus a lavish party. He made it into the kingdom of God. There's no indication in the scripture that he gave up all that he had. What about prosperous Zacchaeus? We little man was he. Whom Jesus also let into heaven. And this is interesting. This is, the story of Zacchaeus is right after the story of the rich young ruler where Jesus said, give up all you have. And he walked away sorrowful because he was very rich. Zacchaeus, what does he say? I'll give up half of all I have. And Jesus says, salvation has come to this house. Why? It wasn't like Jesus was shortchanging the way to salvation. The way to salvation wasn't through the man's works anyway. It was through faith. And what did Jesus do? When he spoke to Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus responded with faith. And he proved through his works that the money wasn't the issue for him. That it was the kingdom of Jesus that he loved. And the Savior who died for him. This woe in verse 24 isn't to people who are very wealthy because God actually blessed them with wealth in the first place. It is Yahweh who gives you the power to make wealth. Deuteronomy 8.18 the rich folk in verse 24 are the, we might call them riches now people. According to the world, they have it all and 
The problem is that's the real great lasting desire of their hearts. I want to be rich, and I want to be rich in this life. That's who Jesus is aiming at here. That's who he's targeting. Any who forsake the kingdom of Christ, who begin the journey and then the love of riches lure them away, Jesus says, woe, woe to you. James puts it this way, come now you rich people, weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have corroded and their corrosion will serve as a testimony against you and will consume your flesh like fire. It is in the last days that you have stored up your treasure. James 5, 1 to 3. By the way, James written to believers. You see why Jesus says this is a bad idea to give up the kingdom for the sake of riches? It's because he knows a judgment day is coming. Sure, you're receiving your comfort now, then there's that little tag at the end. It's scary. You're receiving your comfort now in full. Apakete is the Greek word. It's a term that was used in business transactions. When you finished the purchase and you received your receipt, the person would write apakete, which means paid in full. Can you imagine meeting Jesus one day? hoping for something good in eternity, and the Lord of all creation looks at you and says, I'm sorry, but you've already been compensated in the life you lived. You've already had all the good that you're ever going to get. If you're living for the riches of this earth, in this life, that's what you live for, Jesus says, woe to you, you'll be sorry. Look at the second woe. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you shall be hungry. Now, what else is true of the one who seeks the riches of earth? Well, they have appetites to match. They are those who are well-fed, but the Bible says they'll be hungry. Again, from the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. And in Hades, he, the rich man, lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom, a place of comfort. And he cried out and he said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. And send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. You've got to ask yourself the question, what is it going to be like one day for those people who actually did live by bread alone? Can you imagine the insatiable hunger and thirst of those who live for the fillets and the wine, who live for lavish dining, or whose taste buds require just the right delicacies at every meal. Perfect piece of toast, perfect cup of coffee, whatever condiments in whatever quantities. It's an unquenchable desire for goodies, even if those goodies are just little Debbie's. But these people have no hunger for the things of God. They've given it up for a, for a life of luxury here. They have no desire to feast regularly on the words of Jesus. They have no love for prayer, no craving to meet with the saints of God and grow in the likeness of Christ, no matter the cost to themselves. They have no unavoidable impulse to share Jesus with the lost. 
What does Jesus say? Woe unto you. Woe unto you if that's you. You're the ones that James spoke about when he said, you who have lived luxuriously on the earth and lived in self-indulgence, you have fattened your hearts for the day of slaughter. James 5 verse 5. Those rich who get all they can, can all they get, and then they live for what's inside of their can. What does Jesus say? He says, you'll be sorry. And then Jesus says, woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and cry. That's the second part of verse 25. Laughing is, of course, generally a good thing. There's a time to laugh, Solomon says, and also a time to cry. But this is about more than just laughter. The Greek word galao is used in the Septuagint as a boastful, self-satisfied, condescending, rejoicing in the harm of others kind of jesting. If you think of a superhero movie, whichever one may be your favorite, usually a point in the movie where the bad guy captures the hero and he starts monologuing. He's gloating over how he's finally got the upper hand. The pontificating usually ends in one of those quintessential shrieking laughs. You can think Jafar from Aladdin or the Joker from Batman. Those two came to my mind. It's a kind of guffaw that makes you want to reach into the screen and punch him in the face. It's irritating. That's the kind of laughter that Jesus is talking about here. And it doesn't make God very happy either. In the book of Lamentations, Galao describes the kind of mocking Israel's enemies did when Jerusalem was destroyed. It's the same kind of laughter. The people of God, their costly lives, their broken spirits over sin, their commitment to obeying Yahweh and preaching a gospel that is folly to men. What if all of a sudden that becomes a joke? Oh, you Puritan. You fundamentalist, you're such an extremist. (laughs) That laughter, that's what our Lord's talking about. And what does Jesus do? He pronounces a double imprecation on them. He says, for you shall mourn and cry. Now this is parallelism. The two words actually convey the same idea, but the doubling of them intensifies the sense of trouble that these mockers are going to face on the last day. Can you fathom an eternity where there would never be a respite from mourning and crying? Not one smile, not a chuckle, not one sign of relief. Can't even get close to a laugh. You can't even sigh. Only sorrow and sadness forever. For those who are lured away and enticed by their own desires, desires to celebrate what God hates, to make light of the persecution of the true church of Jesus, to laugh at what makes God weep, what does Jesus say? He says, woe to you, you'll be sorry. Lastly, Jesus warns, woe to you when all men speak well of you, for their fathers were doing the same thing to the false prophets. We know, beloved, that the value system of the world is for that kind of popularity. The opiate of the masses today is the attention of others. 
the sour fuel of our broken motors that they thirst for is the clamor of those outside of ourselves. We crave admiration to be liked, to be part of the in crowd, to have people even at times flatter us and us overlook it because, oh, that, I kind of like that. That made me feel good. Even the people of Jesus who have pledged to wed him on the last day, what can they do? They can whore themselves out for this fleeting esteem of others. It's not wrong to have a good reputation and name, even amongst the heathen. Paul instructed believers, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. He said, if it's possible, be at peace with all men. There's nothing wrong with having a respect and admiration for your good conduct and behavior. But the warning that Jesus gives here comes in the use of the Greek word pontes, which means all. Woe to you when all men speak well of you. I asked my children last night in family worship, how do you get to a place where all people speak well of you? You're going to have one person over here that's got one opinion, one person that has a different opinion. The only way to get both of them to like you because you agree with them about their opinions because you're a man pleaser is to be a hypocrite. To have shifting opinions depending on who you come into contact with. And that's what the false prophets were up to, wasn't it? From Isaiah chapter 30, they changed their messages constantly to suit the demands of the crowds. You must not see visions from God, they said. You must not prophesy to us what is right. Instead, speak to us pleasant things and smooth words. Prophesy deceitful illusions that we will enjoy. That's why they were loved. That's why they were receiving the praise of men. And what does Jesus say here? If that's you, you who claim to follow Christ, if that's you, you'll be sorry. Woe to you. Now here's where I want to land this plane today. So we've gone through these four woes. I want to ask you the question, who comes to your mind? When you think of the rich, when you think of the well-fed, those laughing at the church of Jesus Christ now, when you think of those who are spoken well of in the big elite circles, you might think of the, the richest men and women on earth, George Soros, Anthony Fauci, the Clintons, Zuckerberg, the cream of the high-tier crop. Those are easy targets. Can we say that these things will be true of them? Yes. But I ask you to take it in-house for a minute. I use that a little loosely too. Because what about the prosperity teachers? What about Kenneth Copeland and Benny Hinn? What about Joyce Myers or Joel Osteen? What about Jim and Tammy Faye Baker, T.D. Jakes, Creflo Dollar, Paula White? I think most people here would agree that their ministries, if you can call them that, are satanic to the core. Their beatitudes, we know that they're following Satan because their beatitudes, the blessings that they preach and teach and are aiming at are the woes of Jesus from Luke chapter 6. That's exactly what they want people to have. Riches in this life, fullness in this life, laughter in this life, even chuckling over those crazy extremists over there. People to speak well of you, your best life now. 
And unless they repent, they will pay the price forever. They'll be sorry. But let's go another layer down. What about the term that we use frequently at CTK? What about Big Eva? What about those teachers and preachers who have caused a drift of the church of Jesus Christ, even amongst the Reformed, towards theological liberalism? What about Beth Moore and women pastors? What about Andy Stanley and the safe space for the homosexual in the church? I want you to think back to 2018 and teachers like the Bidiana Boyle promoting CRT and intersectionality. Or in 2020, men like Ed Stetzer and J.D. Greer working to codify that foolishness in the Southern Baptist Convention. Or traditionally reformed guys like Matt Chandler preaching heresies like CRT from his own pulpit. What did Jesus say in John 12, 43? They love the glory of men rather than the glory of God. Woe unto them. They must repent or cursed forever they will be. They'll be sorry. But consider this, beloved. A trustworthy statement and deserving of full acceptance by all. We need to know this. God gives us the leaders that we deserve. God gives us the leaders we deserve. Where do the prosperity guys and the reformed liberals come from? How do they get their powerful platforms? How are they perennially successful? It's because modern Christianity wants them. You must not seek visions from God. You must not prophesy to us what is right. Speak to us pleasant things and smooth words. Prophesy deceitful illusions that we will enjoy. Some things never change. Woe to the teachers for how they lead the true church astray, but woe to the church for clamoring for those teachers for demanding the damnable lies that go down so smoothly into our cold hearts. Woe to those who want to be taught to love what God hates, to play stupid games and win stupid prizes. You say to me this morning, but I never wanted any of those things. I never tolerated the prosperity nonsense or the liberalism. I fought the lies and the heresies and I've often paid a price for it. And I praise God with you for that. Praise God that he has given you eyes to see and ears to hear that you never had a taste for these elusive kinds of wickedness. But let me ask you, how did they get there? It wasn't overnight. What slippery slope did they get on? What purity spiral did they begin to buy into? Let me ask you, church, are you poor for Jesus? Have you given up the pleasures of this world because of your poverty of spirit? Or are you longing to be rich in this life? Is that what drives you? Is that what motivates your work? Do you hunger and thirst for righteousness? Are you doing the things that God requires of you for truth, for prayer, for fasting, for the saints and for their good? Or do you live primarily for your earthly appetites, for what is passing and temporary? for the ideal food and comforts and luxuries that if people knew it was true of you, it would make you indistinguishable from the lost. What do you cry and mourn over right now? Your unbelieving spouse or children or family members or co-workers? 
Do you grieve your remaining sin? Or the fledgling church in the West? Or the fact that tens of thousands are dying every day who have never heard the name of Jesus? Who have zero access to the gospel of Jesus Christ? Do you live for entertainment and amusement and pleasure? A lust for euphoria of any kind? You think of overzealous Christians that they all ought to tone down their fiery rhetoric. Let me ask you, does your walk with Jesus cost you anything? The favor of the world or even a friendship with a member of another local congregation? Who are the enemies you have made because you love Jesus? What are they saying about you now? Or do you prefer to keep things safe and amiable with those who hate God and lead others astray? Don't rock the boat. Love the sinner. Never address the sin. Just be a faithful presence. My point is this. We get to the prosperity gospel and the liberal gospel by small, almost unnoticeable compromises. A little here, a little there, all the while shepherding our hearts and family and fellow members away from the Beatitudes and towards the woes. Consider this a brotherly warning. And if you know God is pointing to one particular issue, or maybe more than one in your life, then repent. Repent and come back to God. Come back to Jesus. But as I close, I want to take this a slightly different direction. One of the big indicators of where you stand, beatitudes and woes, is visible in your motivation for the kingdom of God. The first part of our Lord's prayer is, Father, let your kingdom come. Luke 11, verse 12. Jesus said, seek first the Father's kingdom. Matthew 6, 33. Our charge as Christians is to go and make disciples of all the nations. Matthew 28, 19. If you think back to Psalm 1, what's on the blessed man's mind? Not the foolish pleasures of the wicked, but rather to see his father's house explode across the world, to see the righteousness of God displayed in his own life. And we want to see that here in Anderson County. We also want to see it in other places too. Several years ago, when Michael Foster first started the County Before Country conferences, he preached a message called Make Sending Local Again. He basically said that East River Church wasn't going to send Christians overseas because as they see it, God has called them for this time and in this season to the people of Batavia, Ohio. It's no secret to anyone in this congregation how much the elders at CTK appreciate Foster. We're indebted to him for much of the mission and ministry of this church. And that kind of local focus where they're not thinking about global sending is a calculated decision by their church leadership for a particular season. But church, that's not who we are at Christ the King. Beloved, Christ has knit both localism and global sending into the heartbeat of this church. On our founding church charter is the name of a man whom this covenant body has identified as called by God to go. And he was approved and sent for intentional overseas work. In this way, at the very least, rescuing the global lost is part of our church DNA and always will be.
We're never going to be that mega church with a bloated international budget and a wall of pictures in the vestibule of intentional workers that no one knows nor cares about. We are going to do this well. We're going to do sending well. Daniel Haas has said before that we hope to outkick the coverage in our sending overseas. So let me ask you a question this morning. Has God been calling you to go? But you've been reluctant because you have a greater desire for riches, for comfort, for entertainment, and to keep a fan base here. I'm talking to the young and the old right now. Teens and children, this is meant for your ears too. Our dear friends in Central Asia gave it all up. They become poor in many ways that none of us will ever experience. They face a unique kind of hunger for the sake of the kingdom. They deal with tears and exclusion that we will never know. Whatever your romantic thoughts are about overseas work, all the pictures that we see in text messages or in Mattermost with smiling faces, unique culture, delicious food, each day must be so exciting. There's an adventure. They go from strength to strength. Don't be fooled. Glamorous, exotic, it ain't like that. Being sent is hard work. Doldrum-like days. The reward is almost entirely in the future. But Christ gave the call, and they counted the cost, and they said, Lord, here am I. Send me. Has Christ been calling you to go? But you've refused because you can't bear to lose the pleasures of the West. Brethren, we need to recognize that Jesus would say to that man or that woman, to that family, Woe to you for not heeding my call. I know that not everyone is going to be sent. The vast majority of people in this room will not. But does your zeal for the house of God cause you to recognize the need of our friends overseas? That they need your prayers every day? That they need your encouragement through text message or email or voice calls? That they need your resources to help them continue the work effectually? Or have the luxuries gifted to us by our forefathers here caused you to forget the Father's house, to lay off of the building of the temple of Christ, and to fall asleep? Brethren, we want to finish this race well, whether we will be called to stay and support or be sent to go. We don't want to be found by our master at his return living a lazy boy life. Woe to that man or woman or child. I want to conclude today by quoting a poem by C.T. Studd. His last name says it all. He was a British international worker to China, and he penned these words to summarize what moved him to follow the call of Jesus and to go, to endure the cost of loss in this life for the kingdom and the king who saved him. It's not too long, and it is worth me reading in full. I cannot think of a better way to summarize the tension that we need to feel between the Beatitudes and the woes. Two little lines I heard one day, traveling along life's busy way, bringing conviction to my heart, and from my mind would not depart. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. 
Only one life, yes, only one. Soon will its fleeting hours be done. Then in that day, my Lord to meet and stand before his judgment seat. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, the still small voice, gently pleads for a better choice, bidding me selfish aims to leave and to God's holy will to cleave. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, a few brief years, each with its burdens, hopes, and fears, each with its clays I must fulfill, living for self or in his will. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. When this bright world would tempt me sore, when Satan would a victory score, when self would seek to have its way, then help me, Lord, with joy to say, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Give me, Father, a purpose deep. In joy or sorrow, thy word to keep. Faithful and true, whate'er the strife, pleasing thee in my daily life. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Oh, let my love with fervor burn, and from the world now let me turn. Cling for thee and thee alone, bringing thee pleasures on thy throne. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one. Now let me say, thy will be done. And when at last I'll hear the call, I know I'll say, "Twas worth it all. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Let us pray. O Father, let our lives count for something. We could live here in luxuries and we could live far away on the other side of the world seeking luxuries and pleasures. But let us repent of the things that the world pines after, that they live for. And instead, let us be those of whom it is said, they sought first his kingdom and his righteousness. And then you added all that other stuff to us anyway, because you're good and you do good to us constantly and you never cease to give us perfectly exactly what we need. We love you, King Jesus. Help this church congregation near and far to live for you now and always. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.